And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Welcome, everyone. Uh, thanks for being here. My name is Christopher Hoffman, and I'm filling in uh, for uh, Mr. Boss, a.k.a. Jason Hunt, our editor-in-chief. He's feeling a bit under the weather today. Um, I want to welcome you to this edition of Live from the Bunker. We are live on YouTube, Facebook, Odyssey, and um, we are only a few subscribers away from 100 on Rumble, but we need to get there so we can start streaming. So if you want to head over there and subscribe, that would be greatly appreciated. Um, we're going to go ahead and give a shout out to all the podcasts listeners um, around the world here. Um, we do have the live chat open uh, for comments and, of course, uh, the email is also available at live from the bunker at sci fi for me.com. And believe it or not, we are on episode 475, only 25 shows away from the great 500th anniversary show. Um, we think it's going to be around December 30th. So get ready for that. That's going to be a great, great celebration uh, coming up in December. Um, everything is going okay over here in the uh, vault of the killer bees. Um, now, I usually talk about sort of genre kind of schlocky films. You can see a poster over my shoulder there and there uh, for The House on Sorority Row and Blood castle um, those are usually the films that i'm best known for here at sci-fi for me but um i am a really really avid cinephile of all sorts of different uh genre films and uh particularly films that are um very kind of underrated because they are pretty close to being considered lost media or um, just really didn't didn't have really good word of mouth as far as marketing goes or publicity, that sort of thing. Um, and that brings me to the uh, first topic that I'm going to get to today, and that is the lost films that were recently rediscovered um, by the indicator video label and these are the films of the Pimini organization and they were uh, around from 1972 to 1974 they were a British independent film company um, led by three 20 something filmmakers and writers and they were actually the very first independent British film company to ever get worldwide distribution for a um, for an independent film from Britain, and so that was that's what makes them an important 
company, and I'm really glad to be highlighting them today. Um, not to mention the fact that the films are really, really good and real highly entertaining. Now, the Pimini organization, they began in the in around 1969, um, which under a bit of a, a sort of a happenstance meeting, the main director of the films, um, Peter Crane, would uh, be working at a sort of um, kind of expat, uh, an expat sort of themed restaurant in um, England called Yankee Doodle. <laughs> And um, it was really close to a, uh, a film school or an art college, uh, as it were, that had a film department. And there he met, um, while he was working behind the counter, Michael Sloan, who was a uh, up-and-coming film writer. And he was also doing some sort of bit part acting on the side. And Peter Crane and Michael Sloan hit it off and their, uh, shared their love of film and their interest in working together on a collaboration, trying to get something in the can, as it were. Um, and there were some trials and tribulations uh, with their first uh, short, um, not to mention the fact that um, it was their, their very first outing, they were highly skilled amateurs um, at this point, but um, because of their age and their lack of, um, excuse me, their lack of, uh, not talent, but uh, lack of uh, experience, as it were, um, there weren't a lot of people that were really enthusiastic about sort of investing money in their projects um but that didn't deter them they went ahead and uh put their nose through the grindstone and um michael was just constantly churning out uh, scripts and scripts and scripts and they found a project that they were really really interested in and they were able to meet with edward woodward who you may remember uh, as Sergeant Howie from the uh, famous Wicker Man horror movie. And they passed a script along to him for a film called Hunted. And he was really, really enthusiastic about it. And with the enthusiasm of uh, Edward Woodward, they were able to uh, generate some more enthusiasm uh, with investors. And they were able to get this short film in the can and it's a really really interesting movie i've got some images here that i'll go to there we go we've got a poster on i know it's a little bit uh small here but you can see it was edward woodward and julie ritchie in the hunted now i say this is a short film they, they categorized it as a mid-length movie uh when it came out and it was um, marketed to be slated in as part of a double bill. Back in the uh, 60s and 70s, they would have quite a few of these double bills where they would have a sort of a B feature um, at the beginning 
of the film showing and then you'd have your main feature towards the end of that um and so the hunted was marketed that way as a sort of b feature um and it is it's it's not necessarily like a B feature as in like a schlocky sort of thing and that, but given its runtime, uh, it, it certainly wasn't, uh, wouldn't have been considered like a, a feature length film. Now, getting that technical stuff out of the way, The Hunted itself is a really, really great sort of character study between Edward Woodward and Julie Ritchie. Um, it was shot in one location and it centers around Edward Woodward's character. Hold on, let me shift over here. There we go. <laughs> and that it centers around Edward Woodward's character who uh, has set up an appointment with a real estate uh, agent to look at various office buildings, uh, second story office buildings. And the reason he has done that is because he is looking for a spot to uh, uh, a spot overlooking the town square of the city to um, kind of enact a bit of revenge, aka the uh, University of Texas uh, tower shootings at the time. Um, and it's it's a very small film. And why? what I mean by small is it is devoted to basically just this one room in this office and the dialogue between the two characters. What is so riveting about this film is the, uh, or excuse me, are the performances between Edward Woodward and Julie Ritchie, the sort of... Um, not necessarily hapless, but um, taken by surprise, a real estate agent when she discovers uh, Edward Woodward's true intentions. And you, you're really biting your nails uh, trying to uh, figure out if Julie Ritchie is going to uh, become a hostage or is she going to try and make her escape and try and outwit Edward Woodward or... Um, will she actually become one of the first victims of uh, Edward Woodward's rampage? Now I say rampage. Um, there is a bit of a, a twist to this film, which I will not give away. Um, but it is, uh, it is riveting as I have said before, and it makes the twist makes the film that much more gut wrenching. Um, it does fly by pretty fast for its 45-minute length. Um, and considering it was shot in one location, the uh, the time really doesn't seem to drag. As I mentioned before, it does fly by pretty fast. This was the film that got the uh, Pimini organization on the map. And it was uh, picked up by... Warner Brothers and Columbia, if I remember correctly, and that, and for international distribution, and it was set on a double bill against, let me see here, 
believe it was the the conversation here and that but uh it was set up against the double bill and got international distribution and from that international distribution and the buzz that the hunted uh, um attained uh, the pamini organization was able to go ahead and do their first feature length film and that would be assassin with ian hendry um and once again i apologize for the the smallness of the the one sheet there but you can see it over my shoulder it is a uh, really really kind of tightly written thriller about an assassin um, that's getting a little bit long in the tooth and wondering if uh, he should really sort of retire from the game. Not because he's getting, you know, slower and, and he's not getting any more dependable, but uh, he's just really sort of like losing his heart for it. He, he just, he doesn't find it exciting anymore. He's just going through the motions. And once again, as with all the Pimini films, uh, Assassin is much more of a character study um, than a straight up action thriller. Um, there is a lot of action in this film, uh, particularly towards the end. And uh, there are some very thrilling uh, sequences, especially when there's a bit of a, a showdown between two rival assassins during the end of the film. It's really neat to see this film um, in 2022 because it just, it's a time capsule of 70s Britain. It's got all sort of the uh, kind of old cars and the old suits and, and they go to a... Um, sort of a gentleman's club slash pub um, in Britain. And you can see all the um, mirrored walls and the flecks of gold on some of the mirrors. And it's just, just reeks of uh, 70s Britain. It, it's really, really cool looking. Um, and even though when it was released, it was a, a, a contemporary piece right now. It just perfectly fits in with um, the style of a uh, retro kind of period piece now. Um, he, the Assassin stars Ian Hendry, um, who is a, or was, excuse me, was a respected character actor, um, although he was a bit troubled. Um, unfortunately, uh, Hendry had uh, some alcohol problems and um, it got to the point where he would come to the set um, drunk pretty much every day. Um, it is amazing to see his performance in such a inebriated state. Um, I only wish, and, and as do the filmmakers, wish that they would have been able to get better performance out of him in a more sober state. Um, that being said, his performance as the unnamed assassin is really, really captivating. He brings a whole world weariness to the uh, film that kind of blurs the line between his character and, and the actual actor. And that because you really don't, uh, like if you know a little bit of Hendry's history, 
you can uh, definitely see kind of an overlap between the two characters. It's sort of like I'm I I'm going on, but I'm not really sure if I really want to go on. And in his character has just been wrapped up in so many different lies and deceptions over the years. And he doesn't really have an identity aside from being an assassin. And he tries to make a connection with a, a, a lady he meets at a bar during the movie. And um, ultimately, he just doesn't give himself permission to make that connection. It ends up as a, as a one night stand um, because he doesn't know how to connect to people. Um, because he's been doing his job for so long and just become this kind of semi-faceless, nameless uh, entity that solely uh, is is solely around um, for use by the government to uh, to uh, assassinate people. Um, it is a I, I would say it's a slower movie. Um, it's, as I mentioned before, it's not necessarily action-packed throughout the movie. Um, but what keeps this movie interesting are the performances as um, the as the Pimini Corporation did with the performances in The Hunted. Um, these are really character-based films. Um, you're really not necessarily rooting for the assassin, but you're wondering what his ultimate fate is going to be um, because he not only has to fight himself uh, in his internal kind of monologue that he's going through, but also the machinations of the government organization um, that doesn't necessarily have a lot of faith in his uh, ability at this point in the game um, because they can tell that his heart just isn't in it at this point in time. This film um, was a, a mid-level success uh, when it came out. Um, one of the uh, photographers, actually, excuse me, not the photographer, one of the directors of photography was actually worked on um, the original Get Carter film with Michael Caine. So it definitely has that kind of gritty urban British thriller look to it. Um, it's got a little bit of a retro futurism with it, um, especially when they're in there, uh, when there are scenes in the sort of uh, black ops offices of this uh, unnamed governmental agency that assigns the various assassins um, to their work. Um, not necessarily as futuristic as um, a retro futuristic as an Argento film, like Tenebre, for example, with the brutalistic architecture, that sort of thing. But there are definitely hints of a more sort of European art house type of film as opposed to like a typical American blockbuster, which for me makes it all that more interesting to watch because you can see that they've got the tropes 
of a an American kind of like spy thriller, but there's just like a little extra twist and, and a little more amount of characterization that makes these films really, really enjoyable. Now, the last film that we have is their most lauded film, and unfortunately, the last film of the Pimini organization before they uh, disbanded, and that would be Moments. And this was done in 1973, and it starred Keith Mitchell and, let me see here, her first name is a bit of a juicy it is um, Agatha, Agatha, okay, excuse me, um, Ang Angarad uh, Rees, um, and it's spelled A-N-G-H-A-R-A-R-D, so um, a bit of a tongue twister there, um, but she plays the character of Christy Hunter and Keith Mitchell, um, plays Peter Samuelson, and uh, Keith Mitchell is the uh, protagonist in this film, um, and he is a middle-aged, um, middle-aged kind of just past midlife crisis um, accountant working for a ventilation company in Britain who has decided to take a uh, off-season vacation um, to a, a British seaside resort that he uh, visited when he was younger. Um, the reason he has decided to go back to this resort is um, uh, because he has... Uh, an, an, He's decided to go ahead and well, excuse me, it's a bit of a, a bit of a tough subject. Um, it's uh, he Keith, Keith Mitchell's character has decided that um, he really doesn't have any sort of um, reason to live anymore. So he's gone back to the place where he found the most happiness. Um, with the intent on uh, on uh, ending his life. But when he arrives at the hotel, which is virtually deserted because it is the off-season of this um, beachside British resort, and um, during the off-season, uh, if you know anything about these resorts, they get very bitterly, bitterly cold and um, not necessarily a... Uh, a tourist destination during the winter's months. So the hotel itself is virtually deserted aside from some of the townsfolk that um, frequent the hotel uh, on the weekends and a one other guest that uh, happens upon um, Keith Mitchell's character and that is uh, Agratha here um, who plays Christy Mitchell and they form sort of a a relationship that's comparable to that of uh, Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray in uh, Lost in Translation. Um, and that sort of delays um, uh, Keith Mitchell's uh, decision 
to uh, go ahead and, and end everything. And their dynamic is really, really interesting because they're not exactly polar opposites. Um, there is a little bit of a uh, sort of Ruth Gordon kind of zest for life element that um, that Agatha brings to her uh, part as Chrissy. And it gives um, Keith Mitchell's character a really, really kind of... Uh, a bit of a bright spot, a, a little bit of hope that maybe he does have something to live for uh, during the film. But as the film progresses, uh, we see that uh, Chrissy is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, she is um, very honest and, and, and forthcoming from her emotions about how she does want to connect with uh, Keith Mitchell's character, but she does have some sort of deception and lies going on in some of the uh, motivations that she has towards, <clears throat> excuse me, towards uh, getting to know uh, Keith Mitchell's character. This film is uh, really, really interesting as far as the characterization goes and i understand that i've seen said characterization a lot with the pimini corporate uh pimini organization when it comes to their films that being said um that is uh, one of the reasons why these films are so watchable is just the interpersonal dynamic between the characters in the films you really get to know these characters and you really get to kind of empathize with them in each of their plots. Um, there is a another twist uh, in moments that comes up that uh, is <clears throat> a bit unsettling. Um, it is also kind of satisfying. It's, it's not uh, like a pull the rug out from under you twist of the movie, but it does uh, add to multiple re-watchings of the film to catch like subtle dialogue changes and that sort of thing. Uh, during the movie, I've got a picture here of uh, Agatha Reeves, or Agrafa Reeves here, excuse me, uh, as Chrissy, and she is a highlight of the film. Now with this film, uh, <clears throat> with these films, excuse me, they were pretty much lost. Um, there were only like maybe one to two 35, miller, uh, 35 millimeter prints left of the films um, in existence. And with that, um, a lot of the film itself, uh, because they had been shown so much during their theatrical runs. And if you know anything about film distribution, there's usually, uh, especially in the 70s, there was usually about like one or two film prints of a, of a movie. Um, and especially if it was like a kind of a regional or a indie production, these film uh, prints were shipped around 
the different theaters. So you would have um, one theater playing your film for like maybe two, three weeks, and then it would be physically shipped to another theater, and then they would play the same film. And so after being played for so many, many times, you would have a lot of um, film deterioration. And in fact, some of the films uh, even broke uh, during transport or during the projection process after being played so many times. Um, that is the case with moments um, because there was actually a scene in Moments, which is pretty pivotal, um, where Chrissy and um, Peter are getting to know each other and they're walking along a boardwalk. And that, uh, unfortunately, uh, was a scene that had been clipped and sort of taped together because um, it had run so many times that that portion of the film had split uh, in the negative. And because it was split and, you know, taped together, chopped together to be shown again and again, there were parts of this film that were chopped up and uh, there were whole scenes of dialogue that were missing. And if there was only because there was only, excuse me, one reel of this film left, um, when it came time for this uh, film to be restored uh, by indicator video, um, they were going through the process of, of looking at the film the first time. They saw that the scene was cut up and they were at a bit of a loss. How are we going to show this as a complete restored film if we don't have this extra scene. They were uh, actually able to get in contact with the British Film Institute, which had copies of all three of the films, uh, Moments, Assassin, and Hunted. But unfortunately, the only copies that they had uh, in the British Film Institute archives were copies of the film that were on um, super VHS uh, video cassettes for for archival purposes. They weren't uh, there to be like shown or anything like that. But fortunately, um, with this super uh, VHS copy, the scene along the boardwalk in Moments was intact. So if you see the restoration of Moments, which I highly recommend, um, you will see that there is a couple of seconds where the video quality really changes up. And that is because they actually went ahead and um, they, in the restoration process, they spliced together the uh, video scene um, and the boardwalk scene together. And um, you can see that there is no sort of like jump in dialogue or, or um, any sort of like, quick edits or anything like that, like jump cuts, um, as there were in the uh, the original print that was very much deteriorated. But you will notice like a definite sort of like a video glitch a little bit about it. But um, that, uh, I'm not gonna say is the price that you pay for, for restoration, but it's, it's sort of a, uh, 
a thing that you will will have to kind of overlook just for a second. It's only for a second, but um, luckily the elements were there to get a restored copy of this film. Um, all of these films by uh, the Pamini organization definitely deserve to be seen. Um, and I am really, really happy that uh, Indicator has come out with the box set again, uh, or for the first time, actually, because this is the first time uh, that they have ever been available on home video. Um, the only reason these films were shown, or the only way these films were shown, were um, through either uh, television reruns or um, sometimes they would uh, be shown at a, a local theater, but those showings were very few and very far between uh, after their original airings in the 70s. And the Pamini organization, um, the box set from Indicator comes with a perfect bound book. And as you can see here, it's got a photo of uh, Ian Hendry from Assassins on it. And it's got a history and all sorts of photographs from the different films. It's got a lot of great anecdotes about uh, the making of the films. And one of those in particular is the fact that uh, the uh, Michael Sloan and Peter Crane were actually able to meet Ian Hendry um, in a pub and um, sort of talk to him about the, uh, uh, the script for the assassins. And <clears throat> the longer their meeting at the pub went, the more drinks Ian Hendry had and uh, the more drinks that Ian Hendry uh, imbibed the more enthusiastic he got about the film and um, the more ideas he sort of passed on to Peter Crane and Michael Sloan, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, <laughs> so after about, uh, about four or five uh, Brandy and Cokes, uh, uh, Michael Sloan and Peter Crane uh, kind of figured out that uh, what Ian Hendry had in mind for the film um, at least while he was at the pub, was going to be this huge blockbuster movie. And um, they sort of had to kind of break it to Ian Hendry sort of gently that um, it's, uh, that's not, not within our budget, not within our budget at all. Um, and you have all sorts of fun little anecdotes um, like that in the book, as well as um, various commentaries. You've got short films, and the box set itself also comes with some production steel cards here. And from the various movies, let's see, there we go. They've got Edward Woodward and Ian Hendry. And it's just a really, really interesting box set. Um, we're gonna take a little bit of a break and we'll come right back and we'll go ahead and uh, get into the importance of uh, restoration of films and physical media. Our transmitters are made from hand wavium. This is Sci-Fi For Me Radio. 
Hi everyone, Jason Hunt here, inviting you to join us every Saturday morning for news. The week's headlines in science fiction, fantasy, horror, comic books, video games, plus Comic-Con updates and the weather, and the occasional interview along the way. We call it Good Morning Multiverse. We hope you join us every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 Central, right here on Sci-Fi For Me TV. So, um, <laughs> it's funny that you should ask that. It's a great question. That is an awesome question. When you need to know, count on Sci-Fi For Me to be there asking all of the questions. It's a good question. It's a great question. <laughs> Interviews with writers, filmmakers, artists, and actors. I don't think I answered any of your questions. I'm bringing you news and opinion from all over the web. Sci-Fi For Me, delivering the multiverse since 2009. All right, guys. Hi. Welcome back. And that we are here at the uh, alternate bunker, uh, otherwise known as a vault of the killer bees. And that, hello again. Welcome back. We're here at the uh, alternate bunker, uh, otherwise known as a vault of the killer bees. And um, before we took the break, we were speaking about the Pamini organization and uh, their. Uh, recent rediscovery and the box set that uh, has come out by indicator films of the pamini organization and i know that these are um they're kind of skirting the genre a bit i mean they are all thrillers some of them do have some supernatural elements to them um but the reason i wanted to speak about these today um, as opposed to uh, something like House on Sorority Row or Blood Castle is because I'm really a proponent of discovering all sorts of um, hidden gems and dipping your uh, kind of uh, film curiosity into various different kind of genres and finding films that are really, really underrepresented, uh, underrepresented, represented again. There we go. <laughs> but uh, films that are underrepresented and I'm with the advent of uh, the sort of like digital on demand and streaming services, as well as um, kind of, hey, you can purchase this for your digital library. It, it seems like we're going in this direction where everything is um, supposedly going to be available on streaming, but much to my chagrin, and I know some of my friends' chagrins as well, um, you're not able to find the, the films that you really kind of want to seek out um the films that are available are usually just um some of like the big blockbusters and that sort of thing and if you own them on digital as we have seen you don't necessarily really own them um there was a, a cartoon series uh, that was owned by um, i believe it was sony um, it, that people had bought and added to their digital library. And um, Sony decided that, okay, we're going to go ahead and pull this cartoon series 
off of all of our streaming services. And they also pulled that out of everyone's digital library, whether they had, you know, I mean, when, when they had obviously like paid for it in their library and they thought that they owned it, it turns out that they really didn't own it. They, they owned, I guess, the right to keep it in their digital library until the, uh, the actual studios decided that like, ah, we're not gonna let you have it anymore. And with physical media, you actually do have, you know, something to hold on to. Um, and so you don't have to worry about not being able to see something uh, that you want to, and you go to look it up in your library and it's not there anymore. Um, another example in the animated film um, that is going to, uh, that is actually going out of print. So I would suggest if you are a fan of this show and a fan of physical media picking it up would be Gravity Falls. Uh, Gravity Falls was a uh, animated Disney series uh, that was um, kind of like the X-Files and um, a very irreverent, um, very, uh, kid-friendly, but also didn't talk down to the kids and uh, very, very uh, watchable by adults. There's all sorts of like kind of Easter eggs and sort of uh, hidden jokes in there. It's a really, really thrilling kind of animated series about a couple of kids that go to a um, spend the summer with their grand uncle, Grunkle Stan, uh, at his mystery shack, which is a roadside attraction um sort of shack and they discover when they're exploring the surroundings of the mystery shack that there are all sorts of different like you know, cryptid monsters like gnomes and um there's a creature called a grim loblin in there and if you look into its eyes it'll show you its worst nightmares you know or your worst nightmares as it were and so there's all sorts of kind of irreverent humor in the film um and it was going to be uh, shown on Disney Plus as streaming, but there's never a date as to how long it will be available on streaming. And unfortunately, um, all of the physical media copies like the DVDs and the Blu-rays are going to be going out of print. And because they're going out of print, although you might be able to uh, get a hold of you know, the episodes to watch on streaming, you're not going to get any of the behind the scenes stuff. There was a um, hour and a half long documentary um, all about the making of Gravity Falls and all of the different uh, secrets in the animation because the film it's uh, or the series itself is really a mystery as far as um, the overarching uh, storyline. In fact, actually at the, the end credits, towards the end of the credits, there's actually a, like a little cipher code um, that uh, you can solve that will give you hints as to the rest of the story, um, rest of the story arcs and, or maybe it's just like a, a funny quote and that it kind of harkens back to the old radio shows where you have like the, the decoder rings. And it's just a really, really unique program. And with the physical media, um, as I mentioned before, you, you get commentary with all of the episodes, 
um, you get the behind the scenes documentary and you get um, a really, really interesting look at how not only how the series was made, but also the different influences and the kind of more insight into the mystery of the program itself. And once these, uh, once this physical media is gone, um, you're not going to have, you're not going to be able to get your hands on that extra stuff to add to your enjoyment of the program itself. And who knows how long the, um, the episodes are going to be available on streaming. Um, it's, it's just really a shame that it seems like everything is going to streaming. And because of that, we're sort of at the mercy of what the streaming providers are going to, um, you know, give to us and that we're, we're certainly not going to be able to, you know, go ahead and uh, be able to, you know, probably, you know, get a pristine copy of like Blood Castle over here or something like that to watch in the middle of the night if we look up something. Um, and that, that being said, the uh the excuse me that being said the uh excuse me that um luckily there are a lot of different sort of what you would call boutique labels or smaller uh video labels that have taken upon themselves to rescue these kind of um sort of hidden gem films and genre movies and given them uh restorations and um kind of the respect that they deserve as parts of film history of course we've got like shout factory uh which is one of the more famous uh more famous distribution companies and i've got here a collector's edition of black christmas and that and it's got you know, a 2K scan, and it's got commentary by Bob Clark, and um, Bob Clark uh, unfortunately has passed away, but it's a, it's a really neat commentary about the insight of his filmmaking process. Um, there's essays in here about the Black Christmas legacy, and this is a, the, you know, original Christmas slasher. It's a great piece of film history, and if you go searching online, you're most likely uh, going to find the streaming copy of the 2019 Black Christmas, which is, uh, it, it's it's not as good as the original. And that, um, like like my grandma used to say, if you don't have something nice, don't say anything at all. <laughs> and that, but um, we got Shout Factory that's doing a great job of bringing these kind of um, sort of genre films back and giving them the highlights that they deserve. We also have Arrow Video, which is doing a lot of stuff with like sort of indie films as well as international movies. We've got here, it's a box set of Gothic Italian Tales of Terror. And this is from the same uh, time period as Mario Bava and all of his uh, sort of 
color saturated black sunday kind of gothic witchiness but these are by uh four different directors and we've got the four films here we've got lady morgan's vengeance and the witch here the third eye and the blancheville monster and these have all been restored again um and they've got all sorts of different commentaries and with the uh like the indicator uh mini organization box set this comes with a great book about history and everything of the different films and their importance in uh film history and their uh great argument for being uh, recognized as important documents that should be uh, watched and, and given their uh, given their day in the sun, as it were. Um, but I suppose if it's a, uh, if we're talking film, not necessarily uh, day in the sun, maybe day in the projector. <laughs> um, genre films deserve to be recognized as influences, um, not only in you know their specific genres, but also influences in um, the modern film lexicon. Um, I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day. And we were talking about uh, Roger Corman, the King of Bees, uh, who is responsible for um, Little Shop of Horrors. Um, and all the uh, Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe movies, to, to name a few. And it was really interesting. If you look at all of the films that he was doing in the 60s, which are still extremely watchable today, um, even by our sort of like bang zoom uh, attention spans, and that you'll notice that um, a lot of the kind of blockbusters that followed, uh, particularly like Star Wars and uh, Jaws uh, done by Lucas and Spielberg, those two directors um, kind of took a lot of, uh, a lot of lessons and a lot of pages out of Roger Corman's books. And um, basically the films that they made popular, Lucas and Spielberg made popular, were basically, uh, if you get right down to it, um, and that thank you very much, Keely Chow, and that I I I totally agree, and that um, definitely definitely uh, rest in peace for Adam Wilcox. But um, as I was mentioning, um, these big time directors that kind of like shaped uh, pop culture in the. Uh, mid to uh, last part of the 20th century and beyond um, got all of their kind of inspiration, um, not only from, you know, it was like some foreign films and stuff like that, but the films that put them on the map <laughs> were just big budget kind of exploitation flicks uh, for, and that, that uh, Roger Corman and uh, his like, were doing but just on a much larger uh, much smaller scale and uh, the ones that were kind of like designated 
to be like the B movies in the drive-in. Um, but it's, it was those influences that uh, kind of paved the way to the modern blockbuster. Um, Roger Corman even did some of the first, uh, <laughs> the first Captain American movie and um, some of the first Spider-Man movies. So you've got these superhero movies. And so they all started at these kind of small sort of grassroots kind of independent Beatles movie levels and then uh, people took notice of them and said hey wait a second that's a good idea let's put some money behind this and let's get some people that um, quote unquote knew what they were doing <laughs> and that and let's see what we can do to make money off of these things um, a good example of uh, that currently is uh, is Barbarian Barbarian is a really great great horror film and it's been hugely popular at the box office um it it's really well done but it's definitely if it was like put in this you know made in the 70s or 80s it, it would definitely be in the drive-ins and that is just kind of this gritty like visceral you know horror experience and the audience is there um the audience is there for that type of experience and, and that type of film. And um, thanks in part to the kind of exposure of that type of film given by Lucas and Spielberg and, and especially um, Tarantino and his love of uh, genre films and his sort of remakes and retreads of the tropes of these genre films for like a new audience. You're opening their eyes to uh, what was going on uh, and what influenced uh, this director. And so they can actually go back and see his influences. And a lot of times uh, some of the influences are um, actually better than the, the upcoming results. Or you can actually like take a look at the, especially with a Tarantino film and it's like, wait a second, hold on. You got that from, you know, the eighth chamber of Shaolin, you know, if you're like, wait a second, you say you, you say you are influenced by genre films, but you've got like uh, that, that's a total scene from that movie, but I'm getting a little bit movie nerdy here. Sorry about that. But um, my point in, in this little rant at this point in time is the audience is there for these genre films um, they're ready for um, all of the stuff that uh, was kind of demeaned and looked down upon in the 60s, 70s and, and the 80s, even though it was making them money. Um, like, for instance, like the, you know, Friday the 13th and the slasher flicks. I mean, those were always kind of looked down as, you know, a bit of low cinema. Mean, meanwhile, they were raking in the bucks for these film companies. In fact, Nightmare on Elm Street um, can be uh, quite uh, uh, quite successfully argued uh, as the film that put New Line Studios on the map. And, you know, it's like, oh, Nightmare on Elm Street, it's a horror film. Ugh. And that it's, it's, it's low art. To me, that's that's a bunch of uh, a bunch of hooey, <laughs> a bunch of kind of 
kind of snobberish gatekeeping and that um, you've got low art, you've got high art. It's just art to me. You've got um, these films that um, deserve to be seen and the audience is there for it. Um, unfortunately, right now, as I mentioned before, aside from a select few films, um, you are not, you really got to search out these hidden, hidden gems. And I am really, really glad that there are some studios available or distribution uh, avenues available for genre classics like this, because um, it, it's, it's sort of like you've, you've got to see where films came from, you know, to appreciate where they are today. And some of these films are um, superior to the original, uh, superior to the remakes, as I've said before, as is the case with a lot of remakes today. But that being said, um, hopefully, um, with the um, hopefully with the prevalence of streaming and different streaming services, it seems like we've got so many now. We've got you know Disney Plus and Paramount and Peacock and HBO Max, all of these things that that their need for product to stream will allow more of these films to be seen um, and appreciated. But as far as like highlighting these films, hopefully we'll have, uh, be able to uh, find some streaming services or get a little more uh a, a, a little more light shed on these various distribution studios and the great work that they are doing in finding these hidden kind of lost genre films, restoring them and putting them out for a new audience. Um, because these films, as I said before, deserve to be seen and they uh, deserve to be recognized as um, influencers on the modern film culture. Plus, I mean, with Black Christmas, as with the uh, Pimini organization movies, you're gonna have a great time watching these films. You'll come back and and you'll come back after you uh, have seen the credits and go to yourself, well, wait a second, why haven't I heard about this? Why haven't I seen this before? You know, these are great, great secrets that definitely deserve to be rediscovered. Um, I thank you so much for uh, your time today, and I really, really appreciate you spending some time with me, and thank you to Jason for letting me have this time um, to talk about my love of all sorts of genre cinema and physical media, and be sure to tune in Friday that we've got a great show on Friday's episode of Live from the Bunker. We are going to be talking to a composer. Let's see, I'm trying to find the his name here. We're going to be talking to a composer, Michael Shapiro. And then on Monday, we've got Michael Gallagher. And uh, Wednesday, we've got Harry Galorkian. And then on the 4th, Friday the 4th of November, we've got Peter Burke. 
And then the first Monday, Monday the 7th, we're going to have Money Talk with Dan and Matt on live from the bunker. And of course, go ahead and mark your calendars for our weekend show, Good Morning Multiverse, where I will be back with um, a new episode of A Vault of the Killer Bees. And I'll be back to be talking about um, <clears throat> more of the greatest in the B-movie genre. I'm thinking about doing a highlight on uh, the house on Sorority Row over here. Um, but I'm still in the works on doing that. Uh, I also have in the bag a little tour, <clears throat> excuse me, a little tour of a, uh, a place in that I got to visit in Oregon called the Peculiarium. And, that, and once again, thank you very much for joining us this hour at Live from the Bunker. And uh, be sure to check out all of our social media offerings. We've got uh, a subscribe star if you'd like to uh, give us a little bit of a tip and help fund some of our better cameras and that sort of thing and, and help us get us get us back out to Oregon. We've got a newsletter. We're on Odyssey, Rumble, and uh, be sure to go ahead and subscribe over on Rumble. Help us help us get to the 100 mark so we can start streaming over there. And we have the Rumble site, as you can see. Uh, we've got uh, our broadcast from the previous episodes of Live from the Bunker, and we look forward to seeing you over there. Have a great Wednesday, everyone, and we will see you on Friday for another Live from the Bunker. Thank you so much. Copyright 2022 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.